Welcome to the Tingo Investing Podcast, where we help you make a better investment and retirement portfolio. We're here to help whether you are a professional investor or a beginning investor, because we believe when everybody is better off, we will love each other even more. So come join and listen to our podcast that is unlike any other financial podcast you've listened to. Welcome podcast listeners. Today in this episode, we're going to cover financial employment and how you can best prepare to land your first job in finance. One of the most popular Tingo podcast episodes has been the episode on how I broke into Wall Street. I wasn't expecting the amount of responses we would receive and many of you emailed me asking how do you land your dream finance job. But we decided to go straight to the source. We have two guests with us from Point72 who both scour the world looking for future investment professionals and then preparing them to become investment analysts. We're going to speak with them, and they're going to share what it takes to break into this world and what we can do to best prepare. With us, we have Jonathan Jones, who leads Point72's global recruitment team, and Jamie Goodfriend, who leads the Point72 Academy program. The Academy program takes fresh college graduates and trains them to become investment analysts. Thank you both for being here with us today. Well, I guess I'm in your office, so thank you for having me here today. Thanks, Rishi. It's great to be here, and uh, welcome to the firm. Great. Thanks for coming. I appreciate taking time out of your day to do this for everyone, and I know the listeners here are very appreciative. Jonathan, let's start with you. So you scour the world looking for all sorts of talent, and then Jamie, you onboard them to become long-short investment analysts. This sounds like a lot of resources and effort. Why do you care so deeply about spending this much time, money, and any other resource on finding and developing talent? Well, you know, Rishi, we operate in what is essentially an intellectual capital business. The performance of our business and our firm, like others like it, is really just dependent on on finding the brightest minds in the industry uh, with the most creativity, the most commerciality, people who can generate investment insights that, that others can't. And we have to uh, to work pretty hard to to find people that really have that differentiated ability for us to uh, to bring to bear in our business. When you say commerciality, what do you mean? By commerciality, I think it's just a differentiated level of insight and a sense for how to find an idea that others have not found and an opportunity to make money, an opportunity to generate returns uh, that others haven't necessarily seen. So let me go ahead and start with a few basic questions then, just to set the vocabulary for the rest of this conversation. Many of us listening may be Wall Street junkies, others may be coming to it for the first time, and then others may not know anything about it. Is Wall Street one monolithic thing? Or what, how is it broken into? Because technically, Wall Street is just a street in lower Manhattan. But there are very few finance firms left. So what does Wall Street really mean? And what does Point 72 mean in that equation? Yeah, I, I think one of the ironies, uh, Rishi, is that uh, although Wall Street is used to refer to uh, the, the financial industry in New York in general, it's ironic that many of the firms considered part of it are no longer physically located in that address. But today, Wall Street's really a catch-all term for a, a handful of different kinds of businesses that are all linked in some way to the financial markets. And that includes investment banks, it includes hedge funds, asset managers, private equity firms, and various others uh, in and amongst those, those industries. All right, so continuing that, we know Point72 is a hedge fund, but there's so many different types of firms and funds out there. What are the differences between, let's say, a proprietary trading firm, mutual fund, hedge fund, and bank? 
Well, I'll start by answering it this way, Rishi. Perhaps at a, at a high level, the uh, the categorization that comes to mind is the sell side and the buy side. And the sell side is a, a term usually used to refer to the banks first and foremost, who are providers of various financial services, such as execution, market making, they're providers of equity research, of transaction advisory services, and so forth. The buy side essentially is the consumers of those services. And those include asset managers, hedge funds, and private equity firms, typically most of them being investment firms in one form or another. Point 72 is a hedge fund. So in that capacity, we are effectively considered part of the buy side. One of the ways I think about mutual funds versus hedge funds or alternative investment vehicles versus more what we call traditional long-only type of funds, which is a question that, that we often do get in the academy, is that all investment vehicles are, are made up of different types of investment securities. And the way that you can construct a portfolio full of securities and the rules that govern how you can put those assets together is what really can differentiate a traditional mutual fund, let's say, from a hedge fund or a private equity fund or some other type of alternative asset class. But the reality is if you look at our fund, for example, the long short business within Point 72, the truth is it constructed of the same securities as a mutual fund is, but our rules and regulations are a little bit different because of the types of investors that we have. So a mutual fund that might have a long position in Apple stock would be the exact same as us having a long position in Apple stock. Uh, with an orientation towards a different type of return and risk profile. And that might be the first way to think about how we differentiate ourselves from traditional investment vehicles. I think what's interesting is also, as you mentioned, the difference in the sell side and the the buy side from a bank perspective. Now, I do want to pivot that a bit. Generally, how does somebody become an analyst at your firm or at a bank? You know, there's a myth that hedge funds only hire Ivy League graduates, especially because hedge funds typically in the past, especially when I was a student, never really recruited out of school. So if they did recruit out of school, it was only seen as the Northeast. Is this still the case? And uh, if not, how does somebody sort of come into the industry from a non-target school? You know, it's a really interesting uh, question, Rishi, and there's a a variety of different parts to it. It strikes me that in the past, it's true that if you went to an elite school, then you probably had a materially better chance of getting into the recruitment funnel for the major investment banks or investment firms, or to the extent that they hired at that level, hedge funds. Over time, I've really seen the the whole process sort of broaden and democratize in significant ways, and and we've certainly been involved in trying to push that envelope ourselves in our own small way. I think there have been a couple of drivers for that. Number one, over the last 20 years, the investment banking and finance industry in general has grown dramatically, Uh, and so the, the hiring appetite itself is considerably larger than it was a while ago. Number two, there's more competition for the talent. And number three, firms have been uh, aggressively looking to diversify their workforces and bring in people from academic backgrounds or demographic backgrounds that they had not previously hired from in large numbers before. And so all of those things are pushing investment banks and hedge funds and various finance firms to cast a wider and wider net for talent. And technology has been an important enabler of that. And in fact, a partnership with Tingo that we're very excited about right now is a great way for us to cast a, a wide net and connect with students in places that we would not otherwise ordinarily be able to find them and connect with them and have really interesting and intriguing talents sort of show up in our recruiting funnel. And just for our listeners, the partnership Point72 and Tingo have, and the reason I know that uh, Point72's program addresses 
well, in my opinion, has a better training program, I guess, or the academy program that has a better onboarding process for new incoming traders is that we host a game and we have for, I think, over a year now we've hosted, uh, this will be our third game. And what we do is we create a trading competition in which you're not measured just on absolute returns. You're measured based on your research process, based on your ability to experience new things. For example, how uncomfortable are you with APIs and do you make the effort to learn? Because the reason is, is that trading nowadays is becoming a much broader term. You're seeing data scientists come in. And, and so the game with Tingo and Points Envy 2, it's an investing competition and it's more than just absolute returns. From there, I know Points Envy 2 takes the top winners of the game and then starts introducing them to the Academy program. I'll pick up on a couple of points you made there, Rishi, because I think they're, they're interesting. And one of the questions that um, that some of your listeners might have on their minds is that what are some of the things that a firm like, like us or a large investment bank or an asset manager might look for when they're hiring uh, at this level? And I think one of the most important things is for candidates to demonstrate a level of informed interest in the in the work that they're applying to do. And Tingo provides a great vehicle to do that. As you pointed out, um, the, the, the whole platform is designed not to just reward somebody happening to make a lucky bet on a single stock that happens to rip for a few weeks during the course of the competition, but instead it, it rewards engagement with the platform, broad use of the various tools and information sources that it has to offer. And, and those, of course, are, are powerful signals in terms of somebody's uh, interest in and frankly enjoyment of investing and their intrigue around it. And we, we find that those are very positive and, and useful indicators uh, that somebody's potentially going to be a, a great candidate for us. So you have to say, you know, one thing I really appreciate is I know the intention of part of our collaboration was also finding talent across the world in a scalable way. Because the typical route of uh, sending people to different schools, it's still a great way to engage, but you can't hit every place in the world. For example, one person gave me a call outside of a military base in a place in rural Arkansas, and he was just calling me about data. And I just thought to myself, this person would be perfect, but how would they get in front of hedge funds in the Northeast? And so I'm, I'm really happy that it's helped solve this problem and helped democratizing, as you mentioned. Okay, so we have a better understanding of the type of schools Point 0.72 recruits from. But what about the different skill sets? Is there a role, not just at Point 0.72, but in the finance industry in general, for people who may not be a finance major or an economics major? I, I think sort of fascinating myths about the investment banking and investment industries, uh, Rishi, is that is the notion that you have to be an econ or finance major in order to be uh, hired into one. And then the reality is is very far from that. In fact, uh, look, one of the reasons people perceive that is simply as a consequence of that's who tends to apply, right? It's natural enough that, uh, that, that our applicant pool would be reasonably skewed towards finance and econ type backgrounds because they have a greater level of or, or greater likelihood of being interested in this kind of work. But the reality is that anybody with an interest in investing, no matter what their academic background is, you know, provided they've come from a, a substantive, rigorous academic major is going to be interesting to us as a potential investment professional. And then it's also important to understand that uh, there are so many roles in a firm like ours and others like it that are beyond the role of being uh, an actual an actual investor. So if you come from a STEM type background, you're a, you're a quantitative researcher or a data scientist or even have a, a liberal arts background, there's a, a, a very wide array of roles that exist here at the firm for you in technology, in data science, in our market intelligence unit, in quantitative investing. There's something here for, for just about everybody. I think I remember reading a lot of founders of hedge funds tend to be philosophy majors, which I always found fascinating. 
I think that discipline is fantastic. I think it is that and music are actually some of the ones I think about that are the most overlooked for us, but yet really show the, the difficulty and rigor in which um, the coursework behind that is very intense. And I think that we appreciate that kind of intensity that people bring to their study. So it's funny that you mentioned that because I think you know both philosophy and music are ones that we actually tend to look at very favorably. Sounds good and great and everything, but what's been the reality? How have you found, have you actually found people outside of the Northeast? Sorry to take the slightly cynical approach, but I do have to hold you accountable to what you just said. Yeah, I think that's very fair, Rishi. Absolutely. Um, I'll give you a, a couple of interesting examples, of a good compare and contrast of how our partnership with Tingo has yielded great hiring results for us. So one person that we hired and actually was was from a really relatively traditional background. You know, she was at a, um, a very highly rated school in the Northeast, one that we physically recruit from, and she was a participant in an investment club. So in that sense, very much you know, sort of down the fairway for us. But uh, she first became interested in our firm and aware of our firm because of the Tingo competition. She uh, you know, she got a, an email about it through the investment club mailing list and that got her dialed into our program and our firm and we ended up hiring her for our internship program 2019. Very different example but from the same competition was uh, a young man who had begun his college career at a community college in North Texas he had subsequently uh, transferred to a to a different school in the same sort of region and he had just been doing online research trying to learn about the finance industry and careers in investing and just educate himself a little bit and he had come across blog posts online that that directed him to uh, to the Tingo platform. He signed up. He ended up being uh, one of our top 20 performers in the competition among class of 2020 graduates, which led him into our recruiting funnel. And we also hired him recently. And he'll become uh, also a member of our 2019 internship program. So those were those were great results for us, and we look forward to more. I'm proud of you, Tingo users. Way to kill it. I think it absolutely makes sense and speaks to just the real fundamental thesis we've had this entire time, which is that, you know, we focus on performance and not pedigree. And that's something that has been incredibly important to us throughout the entire, what is now six classes that we've hired into the academy. So when you say performance, I know points that takes a different approach, but how would an incoming student demonstrate performance before they've necessarily had a track record? What can they do to demonstrate that they care? Well, that's a great question. I think, you know, it begins from at the very beginning, we focus on the raw attributes that we think comprise success, right? So we believe in Point 72 Academy that we can train for most skills that they will need to be successful. So I can speak to that in a bit. But I think even from the very beginning, we look for the raw characteristics, that intellectual curiosity, the rigor that they use to perform every analysis that they do, the intent of accuracy to scrape up every single detail and perform every exercise to perfection. The passion to solve problems and think creatively has to show through their work every time they, they submit something new. And so these characteristics sort of show through in their work from the very beginning. But if you're asking in terms of how we know they're performing well in the program, the program has a lot of different components in it, uh, many of which are actually evaluated and tested so that we can actually come up with this rubric of examination throughout their process uh, and determine the progress that they made prior to graduation. So every step of the way, they're given a lot of feedback and coaching through these evaluation processes, which also inform us of how they're doing. So you get some of these metrics prior to them even joining the academy program. 
More importantly, I think we look for the raw attributes because we develop an approach to hiring that focuses primarily on what we think every student or candidate will contribute to the, to the sort of the portfolio of people that come into the program. So we do have a measurement, uh, for example, as they, they come in through the interview process in the beginning, but even you know throughout the internship, for example, we do think of a detailed rubric that drives uh, our approach to, to hiring if they're with us for, for example, an internship program, which we have prior to the full-time program in the academy. I know we haven't really spoken to the different opportunities at the firm, but uh, that's a very detailed example of how we do evaluate talent. And I'll just add a little bit to, to what Jamie described, because at some level, very much like the investment banks and many firms throughout financial services, we also place a lot of emphasis on our summer internship program as a conduit into our sort of full-time class. And uh, in the way that Jamie described, the, the visibility we get on what the work product is that our interns deliver and the the quality and depth of their work tells us a great deal about their potential to be successful as a full-time hire. So uh, internship hiring is very central to what we do. I don't mean to plug too hard for Point72 here, but like I said, I I have found that this program, from all of our conversations we've had, addresses a lot of my criticisms of the traditional analyst banking route. Now, I do want to pivot that a bit to, let's say, a student is coming to interview for the first time. They see bank analyst program, and they might see something such as the Point72 Academy program. First of all, what is an analyst? What does an analyst do at, let's say, a bank, and what would an analyst do at Point72? Sure. So in my own background, I actually started in investment banking and then subsequently in my life uh, switched to the buy side. So I've experienced personally the differences between the two jobs. And then I've taught programs actually, both you know with an orientation towards uh, transitioning a student to the investment banking uh, industry. And of course, we run Point72 Academy, which transitions a graduating student to a job position as an analyst in our fund. So I can speak personally to the differences that I've seen in my career. I think that an investment banking analyst Uh, learns a great deal, and it's a wonderful opportunity for a lot of uh, students who are interested in pursuing a career in finance in general. I think that the long-run opportunity set for them leads to a lot of optionality because of the skills that they learn every day in their jobs. I would say that from my own experience, there's a lot of focus on modeling and valuation. There's a lot of experience uh, gained in terms of how to interact in a professional setting. You have a lot of repetitions to gain speed and agility in, in performing multiple tasks at once. I do find it, however, to be a little bit more process-oriented than how we think about analysts at Point72 and what we teach in the academy. The biggest differentiation that I've noticed is that, you know, while I said before there's a lot of processing that goes on as an investment banking analyst, at Point72 Academy, we don't take that for granted, but it's sort of is table stakes that you learn how to model well or think about businesses, sort of an evaluation framework. But we try to layer onto that a real rubric of becoming an industry expert, of learning how to research companies, to form a view based on your own assumptions. And that extra layer of thinking and critical thinking is very, very important to becoming successful as an analyst on our platform. For our listeners, I can share my personal experience. On the sell side, I didn't have much of a finance background. I thought all trading was trading. And it turns out market making is very different than being on the buy side. What I discovered was that I came from a science background, and I kind of liked that. Let's take a step back at our own research pace, figure things out. Now, on the sell side, Jamie, you're absolutely right. It was very process-oriented because if a client comes to you and they say, hey, I want a price for, let's say, Apple shares, you have to get back to them within seconds. And you need to build tools to help get them a price in seconds. Whereas if you're on the buy side, 
I kind of like that approach better because I had the leisure of being like, okay, what stock do I want to buy? Do I want to buy Apple? Do I want to buy Google, Microsoft? What tech exposure do I want? I would say my experiences were consistent. You know, on the sell side, you do get an exposure of different vehicles, different products, but it is process oriented. One of the things that I'm the most, actually the most proud of in the academy, and I think as this firm, is the collaboration that's also involved in making decisions and thinking through problems, right? Because you're right, this is a complex problem-solving environment. And I think on the sell side, I find people are a little bit more siloed in, in their deliverables and in their schedule, whereas we really, you know, almost... We almost force this kind of collaborative effort uh, between the minds here. And, and the academy itself is comprised of really differentiated people in terms of how they think. And we believe in this diversity of thought, which helps produce, I think, better results. So it's also an environmental difference that I've noticed, having worked in both environments. And just for our listeners out there, what you said isn't really typical of a lot of hedge funds either. Uh, there are many funds out there that silo off different pods. Proprietary trading firms are known to do that, but hedge funds as well. And I've always been of the opinion that trading is art. Right, Your job is to come up with ideas the rest of the world haven't. And I think, Jonathan, you alluded to that when you said commerciality, is that your job is to find people who can think differently. And Cliff Asin has once said, innovation happens with the coming of orthogonal skill sets, with the coming of different skill sets. And if you take the approach that people can communicate, and I don't mean to plug for you, Point72, but I do have to say the reason we're speaking here today is that I have found your program to be very different. You know, I'm very appreciative of it. But... Well, let's take this conversation in a different direction. Between both of you, you've probably interviewed thousands of people over your careers, and undoubtedly you've seen really good people and also people maybe on the other end, maybe not so good interviews. Do you have any advice for how to do well in an interview, some practical tips, or maybe things people should highlight in an interview? I'm going to pick up on, on that in a couple of different ways, uh, Rishi, and, and I want to talk about not just interviews, but something that's necessary before you get into an interview, which is having a resume that's capable of being selected. So for candidates that are um, that are interested in, in investment banking or finance or investing roles generally, um, I think there are two or three things that, that firms tend to look for, both in resumes and in interviews. Probably the most important of those is what I call just sort of informed interest in the role. And there are a lot of different discrete markers, I think, that students can put down uh, and, and can exhibit that demonstrate that interest. And those are things like participation in an investment club at school, reading the financial press, participation in, a, uh, in an investing game such as, such as Tingo or the equivalent, maintaining a, uh, a personal investment portfolio either with real money or pretend money if, uh, if it comes to that. Um, optional coursework, uh, taking taking training classes. There's a, a multitude of different ways in which students, uh, through their resumes and their activities, can demonstrate those those key interests, and that ultimately carries through into into an interview. People like to talk about um, what I consider a little bit of a false construct for some purposes about you know are, are interviews behavioral or technical in nature, and I think almost all of them tend to be a hybrid of of both, but. The interview that people think of as technical, I think, is more about exploring the nature and the depth of somebody's true interest in the role. Look, being an investment banking analyst or a hedge fund analyst or any one of a multitude of jobs in the in the finance and investment industry is is pretty hard work, right? It's you know there's a lot of uh, a lot of setbacks. The hours can be long. It's demanding. You really, really have to love the work for its own sake. And that's, what, that's some of the most important stuff that uh, the firms are screening for when they interview. And so being able to demonstrate that passion is, is absolutely essential to succeeding in that process. Yeah, and I think uh, you touched on something, this myth I think I've seen in the media is where you see trading or investing as this glamorous lifestyle when really everyone I know who's good at it puts in long hours. You know, I was late to my own birthday party once because I was working late. 
And that's the reality. It's hard work. I mean, you have to come up with ideas. The rest of the world hasn't yet. That's how you demonstrate alpha. That's how you make money. So you have to just whether and that could either mean you have some sort of experience that differentiates you or you put in maybe more hours. Um, so it's a very difficult industry. And I think what gets people through is passion. In your first year, I think you're going to find out quickly if you have a passion for markets, at least in my experience and my friend's experience. And so mentioning that, one interview question I remember being distinctly asked on the last, it was the last person for a super day. Now, in the banking world, and I'm not sure if Point72 is this way, but you have a general interview, you know, maybe it's a phone call or a quick in-person, they come to your school, whatever it may be. And if you pass the first cut, they fly you out to New York, in my case, and you have to meet four people. And the last person, he asked me a question, he's like, okay, so what differentiates you from every other person I've seen come in today? And I said, passion. And I didn't realize what a trite answer that was. And he looks at me, he's like, all right, every single person who's come in here has said passion. Like, what actually makes you different? And uh, I didn't know what he was asking for. And I know at the time I'd done my own personal research, like you had mentioned, personal portfolio. Basically, I brought in material that showed, oh, wait, I go above and beyond. And it sounds like in a similar way, that's what you are looking for. That's something helpful someone can do, whether it's a simulated portfolio, whether it's real money, just managing some sort of risk or being part of groups that demonstrate interest, or as you're saying, informed interest. Yeah, I think that's exactly right, Rishi. I think one of the other important parts of that journey, by the way, is demonstrating to yourself that you like the work. It's very easy. I mean, investment banks and finance firms can, in, in, a, in many respects, cast quite a long shadow over college campuses because they do a lot of hiring. They tend to be fairly sought after in many cases, and it's pretty easy to get sort of swept along in the, in the current towards that when it may or may not be be really right for you. So by doing some of these things that we've been talking about, you can prove to yourself whether or not you really like it. I mean, there's, there's nothing that will uh, help help you establish that quicker than taking a course in basic accounting. If you, uh, if you find you engage with that and you, you like the material and you can do the work, then that's probably a good positive indicator. But if you can't stand it, then becoming an investment banking analyst or a, a re- an equity research analyst in a hedge fund may not be the right career choice for you. One thing that was really helpful for me was exploring the different types of trading. And the good thing at a bigger firm, regardless of where you go, they generally have a flavor to match your flavor. And so we've talked about some positive things people can do in an interview. Uh, what are some common mistakes? One of the things I notice is that sometimes candidates don't read the room. So they have this idea in mind that they want to get across a stock pitch they prepared, or they want to make clear they have intent on some activity, or they want to continually just tell and not show, you know, sort of the interest they have in in the role. But sometimes I think they forget to take a step back and, and read the room and have a conversation. And one of the things that I think about that, the question of commerciality that comes out so often is, do you have the ability to kind of have a conversation to get information or to mutually exchange information about yourself? And, and that's something that I think differentiates a few candidates, frankly, from, from the pool that we see. I think it's a very difficult skill at a younger age to achieve well. Yeah, I'd agree with, with what Jamie said. And I think um, there's real value in, uh, in practicing a little bit practicing the act of, of interviewing. I mean, for most people, it's a little bit of an unnatural experience to talk about yourself in a somewhat self-promotional way. You know, So getting comfortable doing that, getting comfortable about talking about your experiences and the things that you've done so that, to Jamie's point, it becomes a more natural conversation where you're not so nervous and not uncomfortable doing it is, is something that's likely to help make the interview go a lot better. One career counselor gave me the advice, it's not bragging if it's the truth. I like that. I know you can't speak to all banks, but someone's an intern, incoming intern at an analyst program, what's something they can do to stand out and to also convert that into a full-time offer? 
Well, perhaps uh, it would be good to, to pick an example. I'm going to call on Jamie here in a second to uh, to describe one. But we, we, we're very deliberate about making sure that uh, all of our interns are given real substantive work assignments over the course of the summer that are direct, that contribute directly to the work of the investment team that they're assigned to. And those can, can cover a reasonably broad spectrum of, of different flavors. Some of them, for example, can be fairly data-oriented, particularly for, for students coming in from more technical backgrounds that are oriented that way, and others less so. I mean, Jamie, what maybe comes to mind as an example of a, of a summer uh, internship assignment that fit that category? I mean, one of the wonderful things about the internship program is every intern uh, is paired with an investment team for four weeks on the platform. And so they literally, you know, work with the team as if they're part of the team. And the team makes them feel very much a part of the family, you know, of, of that team. And within that, to that point, every product that's issued to them, that's required of them, is central to the work that we do with the firm. There's no, there's no busy work given. So you can imagine that as diverse as an analyst's job is, so goes the diversity of the projects that are assigned. Uh, an example off the top of my head would be, I even had an intern last summer, for example, come up with a new data source for the firm as he was thinking about ways to have a differentiated view on, um, on his sector. I think, and that actually speaks to a greater point at the firm, which is, you know, Steve will accept a great idea from anyone, and that includes interns. That includes the youngest people at the firm. I have seen many interns work on detailed financial analyses. If they, if they come with modeling skills, we'll give them something to challenge their modeling skills. If they come with data skills, we'll give them something to challenge their data skills so they can show that they've learned something and, and, and grown as a student and that they can be pushed as a student to come up with that next great idea. I've seen wonderful creative thought processes come out of these different projects. Just to add a, a footnote to, to what Jamie described and, and to answer your point a little bit, Rishi, about some of the stuff that we, we look for, we're not hiring for or selecting for day one knowledge, particularly not at the internship level, but what one of the things we're most interested in is observing the, the learning curve. So over the course of the 10 weeks, our candidates, or interns I should say, absorbing and processing the material and the concepts that they're exposed to, are they, are they uh, showing grasp of that stuff? Are they asking the same questions repeatedly or making the same mistakes repeatedly or are they making them just once learning from them and moving on and at the end of the summer one of the things we like to do is to essentially take that learning curve that we've seen from them and then project that out or extrapolate that out into the future to get a sense of, of what they ultimately can become and so that's really uh, you know a very key aspect of, of how we think about people and how they can demonstrate success in the in the program sounds like a very data-driven approach well, it's, it's certainly, at some level, it's data-informed, but it's it, call it a structured approach. In other words, we, we look at uh, a variety of different aspects of their performance, and we gather feedback from a number of the people, including the members of the investment team that they've worked on as members of, of Jamie's Academy team who've had exposure to the interns, and put that all together in a structured way. We score it, we rank it. Uh, and that helps to inform our decision making on, on who ultimately comes back full time. Now, as it happens, at the end of all of that, we, uh, we, we find that the vast majority of our interns, in fact, do make the bar. And we, we made offers to 82% of them uh, at the wow. end of this past summer, uh, which we're very excited about. And uh, even more exciting was the fact that um, all of them pretty much accepted over the last four years, we've made 59 offers to former interns to come back in the full-time program. And of those, 58 have accepted, which is a statistic we are uh, we're not enormously proud of. That's amazing. And I know to plug Tingo a bit, Tingo is a part of that process because we do also collect data on, let's say, how people use the platform. For example, when you had your worst day, what did you do? 
if you had your worst portfolio day, did you give up or did you continue to fight forward? And these are the types of metrics we also look at when we're trying to score candidates. And so I, I'm going to answer the one question everyone asks me. I think everyone wants to know the answer to, but there's no clear answer out there. It's going to sound strangely specific, but after the interview, when do you send the follow-up email? And if you don't hear back, when do you reach out again? I might have one piece of advice I would give in the vein of, of writing thank you notes, which I think are very important to do. And, and, and frankly, I when we train our analysts, we believe in professionalism for any external person that we would ever have them meet, uh, you know, includes a courtesy thank you. But constructing the email is something that I think is difficult for many people because we do live in a world of texting. And so learning how to write well and learning how to write a well-written thank you note, I think has a lot of value. I even have gone so far as to recommend sometimes people put a delay on their email send. So if you send something, have it delay for a bit so that you have the opportunity to call it back before you send something you regret. And so I think those two things are things that I might add to this conversation. I always say don't send a follow-up email on a Friday afternoon and don't send one at 2 a.m. Just because you're up, the majority of the world is not. Best case scenario, it gets lost in all of their morning emails and all of their morning reports. But I think you're always more prone to spelling errors and also maybe you regret phrasing something a certain way. One more thing I would say is from emails I've gotten, it's okay for me to be informal, but you should not be informal uh, to what you mentioned about the texting. If I'm informal, it's because of a time constraint, but always edge, as you said, Jamie, on uh, being courteous and also communicating effectively. All right, so I think we're getting to the uh, end of our time here, uh, Jonathan and Jamie. And um, for those of you who are tuning in or curious about how we even got in touch, part of the reason is the Tingo Point72 game. And what that is, is that as many of my listeners know, that Tingo is a financial analytics and research platform. And also now there's an additional feature where if you go to tingo.com forward slash point72, that's T-I-I-N-G-O.com forward slash P-O-I. NT72, you can now join a game in which you're competing with other students to have the best portfolio. But actually, you're also being evaluated on how you use the platform to get a sense of, I guess as Jonathan said, your informed passion. How passionate are you? What's your research process look like? So for those of you who are like, oh, few weeks, like I can just get lucky. You're all just go long on one massively volatile stock and get lucky and we'll see what happens. That's not going to work. We're actually going to look much deeper into your analytics to make sure you have that passion. For those of you who are considering or just curious about a position in the financial world, check out the game, tingo.com forward slash point 72. Jamie and Jonathan, thank you so much for taking the time and uh, inviting me to your amazing New York office. I appreciate it very much. Thank you. Thank you for having us, Rishi, and, uh, and we look forward to, uh, to seeing lots of participants in the Tingo Point 72 Semester Investor Challenge.